Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Angry at the Lollipop Edition. It's Wednesday, December 12, 2018. On today's show, Ralph Breaks the Internet is the sequel to a 2012 movie called Wreck-It Ralph. In this one, a pair of lovable video game characters get uploaded to the internet, and uh, you'll be shocked to discover hijinks ensue. And then Dogs is an anthology docuseries on Netflix about the deep, abiding, loving relationship, very beautiful relationship between human and canine beings. And finally, cliches. We've been taught to hate them, but should we at least so reflexively? Is that a cliche to hate cliches? We discuss. Joining me today is uh, the deputy editor, managing editor of the Los Angeles Times, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Good work, Steve. Hello to you. And uh, Dana Stevens, who's Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. All right. Well, why don't we dig right in? Ralph, uh, at least in the fictional universe of this movie, is an arcade video game villain of your... I'm envisioning a 1980s video game like Donkey Kong or something like that. Anyway, he's a giant galoot with a pair of massive and massively destructive hands. And his best friend is a young speed racer, a character from a race car video game that's adjacent to his in this cute little family-owned arcade. And the MacGuffin here is that after the arcade shuts down, all the characters gather and all the video game characters gather in a central, almost like kind of like grand central like space and share kind of real lives and emotions together with one another i guess people who've seen the first movie will know most of this to that conceit has now been added another one the arcade is now wired to the internet and these two characters vanellope van schweetz 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 and uh ralph uh both go up into the internet uh, off on an adventure they're voiced by sarah silverman and john c Riley. let's listen to a clip Shit, I don't think we're in Litwax anymore. You most certainly are not, friendo. We are in the internet. Come on, Ralph! Holy cow! Look at all this stuff. Whoa. This is the most beautiful miracle I've ever seen. But it's so big, it goes on forever and ever. How are we possibly going to find find eBay out there, Ralph? Kid, kid, don't worry. I'm sure there's someone out here could give us directions. Dana, um, I did you see the first one in the series? I didn't, but it's about to become a mammoth. It is now at this point with this one blowing out the box office. It's now a mammoth franchise. Did you see the installment number one? No, and I feel bad talking about a movie when I didn't see the first one, but I want to go back and see the first one now because I sort of thought as a non-gamer myself and somebody who back in the days, you know, when a character like Wreck-It Ralph and, you know, games, game centers like the Litwick Family Fun Center in this movie existed, I didn't play those games at all. But whether or not you are 
are a gamer, this movie is just a fun exploration of where we are right now with internet culture. I mean, with the proviso that it's a PG or maybe G-rated version of where we are with the internet, right? Obviously. So we're not going too deep into the dark web. But I was actually really impressed at how this movie managed to roll a lot of clever imagery and thinking about what it means to be online right now into a really sweet human story about a friendship between these two characters. I mean, I give this movie, for what it tries to do, an A+. It's absolutely wonderful, and I can't wait to take my daughter to see it and to see the first one. Wow, an A+. I was not expecting that. It's like I took one to the kisser from one of like, <laughs> Ralph's giant ham-like mitts. Uh, I mean, I mean, I, with the proviso, that I'm, I'm not saying that it's my favorite movie or even my favorite animated or children's movie of the look, year. Don't, but don't. Don't walk it back. You gave it an A plus, Julia. Uh, what is this an A plus movie in your estimation? What do you give it? Uh, yeah, count me in. Two thumbs up. The uh, East German judge also raises a ten or a six or whatever it is now. I thought this movie was so smart and so precisely executed. Um, I thought the storyline about friendship and how you let your friends grow and evolve and still love them and don't feel insecure in their attachment to you was like a good emotional storyline of the sort that you don't always see. It had these kind of intimate emotional stakes as you were whirly gigging through this technicolor version of the internet. And and every single scene really has a witty little idea about how to think about how the internet works. Um, and I loved it. Totally loved it. Um, I hated this movie. And ah, it's been tell a, us more. Yeah, it's been a really long time since this has been the dynamic of the show, but um, but it just is today. And, and let me try to think through and explain why. So, I, first of all, it is well executed, it is sort of touching or pseudo touching or like I get that it's humanized in that John Lasseter way, right? So the Pixar executive sort of now kind of semi-exiled, semi-disgraced John Lasseter who still consults, I guess, on some Disney slash Pixar movies. You know, his fa the famous thing that he does, in which he's a genius at, is he takes what could be relatively generic kids material and humanizes it in ways that are daring you know so i mean like the really famous example is in the first or second scene or whatever of finding nemo the mother dies right like you're just emotional he knows how in a real way to emotionally invest you in a movie and make something that's so patently unreal really real and i, I think that there's an element of that to this to me it was overwhelmed by another tendency of some popular culture of the last 10 years which is sort of the ready player one thing where where and it's more than just ready player one or this movie but where you kind of enter into a a parallel universe in which the only thing that's real i mean all of the touchstones of this parallel universe there's no nature or culture as we as we actually experience it in the real world it's all essentially the touchstones of popular culture and within that i'm sure you can create a a, a, a you know highly meaningful allegory and superhuman relationships and i understand that this movie in deft ways does essentially do that i was overwhelmed by my antipathy to this world even though and i and this is i'm sure where the discussion is going to go next day and even though i understand that in many ways this was a satire on this 
However, I feel like they really tried to have their cake and eat it too. I mean, obviously, this is an allegory for how the internet can bring out our absolutely worst self, right? That And our, our most monstrous, most angry, most stereotyping, most alienated, and most insecure, to use a word that the movie exploits, I think quite deftly, self. And, and, and yet, it really struck me, especially when they began interacting almost exclusively with Disney-owned IP in the middle third of the movie, uh, it really struck me as cake and eat it too. That, that they're essentially marketing to me Marvel, Star Wars, and the princesses, these three bedrocks of Disney's empire. Um, and to me, the satire was actually quite weak relative to the degree they were promoting the idea that, yeah, that these things ought to be, like they, they should have onto fucking logical status in your sense of what counts as real in your imaginative universe. And I'm sorry, I got to push back on that. Like to me, that was just, it appalled me. And um, I'm just curious what you thought of that. Wait, but if I don't get what it is in the phrase, it appalled me. Well, Dana, I just said <laughs> what appalled I mean, I, me but, was. But was it the fact that there's a personification of Disney IP? That like Would that be the essence of what appalled you? No, what appalled me was, first of all, the idea that these things ought to loom in this utterly mammoth way in your own imagination to the point where you can make an entire movie in which nothing human or nothing natural as we understand them in our actual lives appears at all. Now, I w I'm willing to stipulate that you can do that and you can humanize it and that they did a pretty great job of humanizing something that denatured and decultured. But what they tried to do is then kind of both promote the empire, the Disney empire, and the totality and you know, force of these characters, right? Uh, while satirizing it and having it both ways. And I just, I'm sorry, like the satire was so in some ways gentle relative to the idea that, you know, stormtroopers from Star Wars and princesses from the various, you know, move cartoons, animated movies and Marvel characters and on and on and on. It's like, ah, I mean, I, I would say I, I, I both understand your itchiness, but I would reframe some of the way you've laid out your objection because they're not in somebody's imagination and in a way the fact that the internet is full of existing ip that you can't search for something on the internet that doesn't exist it has to all have already been placed there like the notion that it's a failure of imagination seems seems off as a critique of that portion of the movie because you could argue that that is the critique embedded in the movie that you go into the internet and you find all of these pre-existing worlds and things that you can embed yourself in and compare yourself to that maybe make it harder to um, figure out uh, what your true feelings are and who your true self is. Now, the part that becomes super cynical and the part that I think is have your cake and eat it too is that in this very knowing way, and I think we can talk a little bit about the Disney princess scene because it, it is featured in all of the reviews of the film. But in this in this very knowing way, um, Vanellope, who is sort of a modern, you know, female hero in a hoodie, a race car driver who at one point has like a thrilling Grand Theft Auto style race with another badass race car driver voiced by Gal Gadot, um, all of which is like fun. It's just fun how a modern movie can flip the gender script and I enjoyed that part of it but um, you know she, she arrives in this part of the internet where the Disney princesses are hanging they all very pertly and sweetly in their dulcet Disney voices 
uh, try to identify whether she is also a Disney princess and ask if she's ever been, uh, you know, enslaved or um, lost her parents or been saved by a big strong man or whatever all the tropes are around Disney princesses. And then, in fact, it is the Disney princesses who whose advice and counsel about self-actualization help uh, Vanellope realize her dreams. And there was something squicky. I, I mean, I think Sam Adams had a great line about this in his slate review of the film, which is that it tries it once to be a self-satire and a victory lap for just how comprehensively Disney has won the movie IP wars. Um, and there, I get it. It's a little yicky, but just in the emotional logic of the movie, it works. Also, the scene with the Disney princesses is fun. And I would bet you guys each a hundred bucks that there will be a Disney princesses compendium movie sometime in the next five years. And I can't wait. It sounds like it will be great. Like if we're, if we have to live in a universe where, uh, some huge portion of our film entertainments are Disney uh, deploying its IP, the notion that they would take all of the princess movies and Marvel universe-size them and modernize all those women. Like, eh, that's not the worst case scenario. That's not the worst timeline. Oh, my God. I mean, I <laughs> guess not. I feel I feel like my uh, my spiritual emptiness has been exposed by the fact that I, I just liked this movie unproblematically. I mean, yes, it's a gentle satire. It's a kid's movie. I'm not quite sure. Steve, did you want there to be – I mean, w- did you – was the objection that there was any attempt to incorporate the history of Disney at all? Would you have rather have there have been no, no. kind of self-reflection I mean, on the part of the company? I, I mean, I don't know. It's, I don't know. I, I don't I, – <laughs> I'm surprised that you're surprised that this could be a legitimate objection, that that a movie that takes as its premise that that its entire its entire world like you can successfully make a movie, a two-hour movie, a super involved two-hour movie, in in which the environment in which it takes place is totally dominated by corporate IP and register no sense of like bewilderment and maybe even alienation in the face of it to me that's frankly that's much more shocking than the idea i didn't like this movie but i mean you know i do think and i want to be clear like i there there were parts of the movie that really do have that touch and i can't tell you that it's john lassiter's touch but it's certainly his influence in one way or another directly or indirectly that are done beautifully and i'd say those are at the beginning of the film there's a scene where he's it's shot from a bird's eye view. It's a darkened, feels like a playing field. I can't remember where it is exactly. And Wreck-It Ralph is just throwing a football up into the lens of the camera and it just comes down and he's catching it. And the two of them are having like a moment. And I that's like, I've seen plenty of animated movies in which the human connection, the the, the almost shocking degree to which you can form the a human connection to the characters, especially early on to set up the whole story. Like it happened again in this movie. And that's the last that are touched. Like I'm not saying it didn't happen. Then for, I would say the middle portion of the movie, I spent the whole time just cranky. Like, I'll just say it, like just totally, f- my inner Theodore Adorno came to the surface. And I was like, <laughs> it's like, this is the degree to which we're enslaved to corporate owned IP that we think that we can tell an entire story within a landscape fabricated out of nothing but Amazon, eBay, all of the giant, you know, Silicon Valley 
monsters. It's just the, like it's a, inside the belly of the fucking octopus. But then you can buy off my sympathies by saying that it's got a satirical edge to it. Well, this, all I'm saying is that the satirical edge, the satirical bite of it is so mild compared to the behemoth totality of those brands. And then like the allegory has some punch at the end where I don't want to give away what they have to face down. But the allegory about how your worst, most monstrous self comes out on the internet, to me, that was utterly true. So I mean, I'm not going to say that I hated the movie. I'm going to say that I I didn't really super enjoy it, and I'm shocked that you guys would give it an A plus. But I've stated my reasons, and you're you know free to disagree. It sounds to me, Steve, like you had an experience with this movie analogous to Ready Player One. Remember Ready Player One way back early sure. in the year, yeah. um, which I think we all agreed was just sort of dizzyingly awful and seemed to subscribe to all kinds of values that it was completely blind to how how awful and corporate they actually were. And the message of that movie, as far as I could understand, it really actually was you know, um, suck up well to your corporate over overlords and you will be you will be awarded their empire or something. It, it really left you with this awful feeling of, you know, so so that's where we are now, you know, with our relationship to technology. And uh, I just I couldn't locate this that feeling in this movie, I think, because ultimately the story that it was telling was more human than that. I think you're right that it was a story about the friendship between these two characters. And and honestly, the climax which i won't give away but in which you know the monstrous self of of ralph kind of takes over in this way that's visualized on screen i thought really beautifully and kind of frighteningly i mean it doesn't address address exactly what you're talking about it doesn't address um their fealty to those various corporate overlords that exist as skyscrapers through through the internet no it's kept it's kept very carefully um uh, quarantined from that in fact the fact that those two things are kept completely separate i think is there's a lot of cynical wisdom to that but it does, I was just going to finish and say, it does address, I think, the dangers of what spending too much time on the internet can do to one's personality and to one's sense of self. And that's not something that this movie had to explore. I mean, it could have stuck with the more typical sort of sappy affirmation of friendship. And I think that it actually did explore some dark avenues having to do with technology that are ones that kids might be likely to not know about yet. Like mm-hmm. the scene where mm-hmm. Ralph wanders into this room, that's the room of comments, where he sees the mean comments <laughs> about all the viral videos he's posted. And uh, and then this character is voiced by Taraji P. Henson, who's sort of the manager of algorithms at this YouTube-like site comes in and says, don't you know, never read the comments. I mean, I just felt like everyday experience online was allegorized successfully by a lot of scenes in this movie. And that was more than it had to pull off. Yeah, I mean, I, with apologies to Ted Adorno, like the stuff of our life is these corporations. And if we're going to tell, I thought that this movie did a remarkable job of displaying how central those brands are to our lives in a way that did not celebrate or lionize them. And in fact, was like a fairly pointed critique of how dan- how wild and woolly the internet is. Um, and I don't know. I would tell people to go see it. I would tell people to go see it. Um, okay, go check it out. Um, it's called Ralph Wrecks the Internet. Is that what it's called? What's breaks. It called? No, it's called Ralph Breaks the Internet, which just, I forgot that that was actually what I just wanted to repeat for this whole segment. Why didn't they call it Ralph Wrecks the Internet? That is a much better title for this movie. Just And it, it's more brand continuity, as long as we're talking about brands, right? From Wreck It Ralph to Ralph Wrecks the Internet. You're right. I've, I've gone around calling it that, and we may have even accidentally called it that once in this segment, because that should, in fact, be its title. Yeah, so demerit for that. Uh, very good. It is Ralph 
breaks the internet. The one thing that disappointed Julia about this grotesque movie is its title. <laughs> Wait, we didn't even mention John C. Riley and Sarah Silverman are great as these voice characters. They're great. It's it's a wonderful movie. Okay, I'm standing up for Ralph. Please go by all means go see it. Every human being on the planet is obliged to uh, go see it anyway. Um, so check it out and 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 worship your corporate overlord. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear um and don't cry to me when I'm... all right well before we go any further dana i think we need to discuss some uh, business right uh yeah business is minimal this week there's just the call-in show which i think we've talked about for the last few weeks it's coming up next week it's going to be our extra show that we record to throw in for the week between christmas and new year's and as always the call-in show is voicemails from listeners in which you can ask us whatever you want and we can wrestle with your strange messy questions about art culture life whatever you want to ask us about if you want to leave a voicemail and maybe get it answered on next week's show the number to call is 323-628-1889 323-628-1889 we're getting some good voicemails and some uh, some some great puzzles to wrestle with but please send us some more if you can so we have a wealth of choices and our Slate Plus segment this week is going to be something that Julia actually called as an audible at the last minute. We had a different topic planned to discuss, but our discussion of cliché in the English language and the state of the use of cliché in today's discourse started to go to such interesting places that we decided to divide off part of it and uh, and talk about Trump and cliché, essentially our dear leader and his use of the English language. Is it refreshing? Is it terrifying? Is it opening up new vistas or shutting them down? That will be our Slate Plus segment this week. All right, well, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. I have scarcely written an introduction for the next uh, segment because, A, I love dogs more than anything in the whole world, and B, because I thought this um, uh, wonderful docuseries really honored what the relationship between humans and and their canine. um, What? You liked this? Yeah, I thought it was lovely. Are you kidding? Oh, fun, fun, fun. Okay, (laughs) proceed. Oh my God! This Go is ahead, like Steve. A, Express your fealty to your corporate dog this, overlords. This is this is like, <laughs> oh my God! This is a throwback <laughs> to season one of the Culture Gap Fest. <laughs> oh my! Like, did we Lord. used to fight more than we fight now? I don't remember that. Well, yeah, no, it's like Julia- Steve has become a Steve has become a weird optimist lately, and and now he's becoming an arty crank again, and, and everything <laughs> is right in the world. Yeah, and Julia began to develop a robot soul that could be mistaken at moments for something tender and human, and now her circuitry has reasserted <laughs> itself in her silicon-based personality. And she's infected uh, me with her computer virus, so I, too, am becoming a robot. <laughs> uh, okay, well, anyway, now that we've overdetermined this thing by a factor of fucking 12, let's talk about the dogs documentary. What did you not like about this? It's a, a series of vignettes about how human beings form deep, really deep, really meaningful relationships with dogs. So what are, is it that you wanted there to be a robot dog? Are you feeling a kind of forlorn? No, you know, no, lay like, out, so- lay out, lay out your defense, lay out why you loved it. Because I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just am so uh, no, surprised I'm, by your response no. to this like cynical piece of of like futuristic hooey 
And, <laughs> oh, oh my, can we just get into the segment here? The format is you speak, Dana speaks, and then I get my little word in edgewise at the end. Okay, Julia, okay. All right, I'll, wh- I'll come out swinging. I'll come out swinging, and then you can bring it up, bring it through here. All right, wait, before we dig in any further, let's listen to a clip. I think we're just scraping the surface of what dogs can really do. Good job! I've been a groomer for 22 years. I put my heart and soul into it. It can be lonely to have the disability. We're hoping he'll be her best friend. I think he's telling us how much he loves us. Senti cosa dice lei. We needed him as much as he needed us. She is my daughter. I love her. So if you felt like you were in the dystopian media future when you watched Ralph Rex the Internet, sorry, Ralph breaks the goddamn Internet. Um, <laughs> I felt that way about this documentary, which felt to me like a media product that could only exist at the present moment when programmers for Netflix were like, gosh, everybody's zipping around on Netflix. We got to, you know, figure out what will hook them in and what they'll watch that will make them feel addicted to um, to content. And so what do people like on the internet? Fluffy puppies. So, okay, let's <laughs> green light a documentary series about puppies and like, let's just call it dogs. Like, let's make it as clear as possible in the algorithm. Fluffy puppies on offer. And then let's hire a bunch of serious documentarians who either on purpose or accidentally, who, who use the vessel of dogs to tell these like deeply sad, dark, contemplative stories about human life, Um, stories that have a ton of intrinsic weight and merit and interest on their own, but they only get featured here around this like doggo relationship. Uh, And I I felt, you know, the, the, I, I felt clickbaited basically by this whole thing, which was essentially like watch some bleak documentaries with puppies romping through them uh, while bleakness penetrates. And and if I'm not anti-bleakness. Obviously, um, it is worthwhile to consider how difficult it is to raise a child with a life-threatening disease, which is what we encounter in uh, episode one. It is useful and important for all of us to understand more deeply the pain and devastation of the war in Syria. Um, and the second story, which is about a Syrian refugee in Berlin separated from his dog in um, back in Syria and their effort to be reunited. Um, so, like, I guess you could say, OK, bring them in with cute dogs and then deliver them the pain of the world. But I felt like the emphasis on the dog human relationship, like, fucked up the the. Uh, moral weight of the storytelling. And in this story about the Syrian refugee, essentially the story is that the guy is, the refugee is incredibly lonely and heartbroken in Berlin, which is poignant and moving and profound. And then he's obsessed with the idea of being reunited with his dog, who he's asked his friend to take care of. But his friend is basically not escaped Syria because he's so devoted to this dog. And I just spent the whole time watching it being like, humans are monstrous. We only care about Syria if there's like a cute dog, like shoot the dog and get the friend to Berlin. Like who fucking cares? I, 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 
I, I felt so manipulated by this and so baffled by the positive reviews to it. I felt um, like it was an incredibly craven exercise in emotional I manipulation, just, and I detested I l- it. <laughs> I love that. I love that someone could watch Ralph breaks the internet and not feel manipulated by gigantic corporate brands and then could watch a doc heartfelt documentary about dogs and feel manipulated by the dogs julia uh, dana i didn't feel manipulated by the dogs i felt manipulated by the filmmakers i'm talking i'm addressing dana now dana how do we continue on with this monster I mean, okay, here I'm I am not gonna side myself completely with my my robot overlord Julia. I'm somewhere in between. I agree that as a piece of property on Netflix, there is a cynicism to this show. And Julia's right that it is right there in the title, like dogs. You know, it might as well have like a dog emoji after the title as it appears in your Netflix queue. And the release of it near the holidays is clearly meant to be, you know, it's it's get bringing in the family viewers. But that said, it kind of worked on me. I brought my family together to watch an episode of it last night. And I'm going to speak up for one episode that is not about the bleakness of the universe. And it's the one we felt like watching last night because, you know, we just didn't feel like learning about a kid with epilepsy or a Syrian refugee. I just wanted to see some nice dogs. An episode, I can't remember which one it is, but the one that's about the grooming competition with the two Japanese groomers who come to the U.S. to to compete um, for this for this crazy dog grooming title is really just fun and sweet and is one that doesn't um, deliver a huge load of, you know, human suffering along with the dog fun. I mean, there is maybe a little bit about the cultural differences between America and Japan and how difficult it is for these Japanese groomers to make themselves understood literally and figuratively and for their style to kind of come over. But as a kind of glimpse into the best in show type world of extreme dog grooming, it's just really fun and full of all kinds of crazy dog haircuts. And I agree with Julia that if we had maybe spent, for example, another hour with the Syrian refugees and seen what happened to his friend after he gets out, that these might have a more balanced sense of not being stories that are being told only through the point of view of when will he be reunited with the dog. I mean, they they are sort of a lot of them are sort of about the money shot that they work toward the entire time of when the person at the film center will either be reunited with their long lost dog or will get their long awaited for dog. You know, those those scenes are sentimental. Um, but I guess I guess I think there are worse things in the world than there being little hour long bite sized documentaries where we all get to swoon over dogs. I mean, I, I almost wish we had someone on this show who didn't like dogs at all and was just not at all convinced by pet sentimentality. And maybe they could take this apart more completely. Well, this this thing turned me into it. I mean, this turned me into that. I love dogs like I'm pro dog in general, but the like creeping fawningness over like I I was sitting on a plane next to someone with a obviously fake emotional support dog the other day (laughs) and even though I like dogs and it was a cute dog I was like it's fucking ludicrous like the way in which we over privilege these relationships is just bananas and this is an insane loophole that like what if you were allergic to dogs or terrified of dogs like it's so horrible that pushy people with like script happy doctors can just like take their fucking animals anywhere and i and this whole thing i i i just i mean i look i sympathize with the plight of a documentarian who's trying to tell a story about syria and syrian refugees it is one of the most grievous things that has happened in the last decade in the world it is an incredibly appalling devastating horrible story it is very hard to gather the attention of the world onto it and to bring attention to it in part because it is so difficult to figure out what the resolution might be. So being able to, able to tell a story about the Syrian conflict where there is some kind of happy ending. And the documentary finally does swerve at the end 
you know, they, they're very focused on the happy ending for the dog and his already escaped owner. And then as sort of a, like, we're not totally inhuman footnote, they also acknowledge that the guy who had stayed behind to take care of the dog does make it across the border. But the way in which it's presented as this footnote, I, I mean, I guess you could argue the flip side argument is humans are so selfless and you know, focused on these comforting bonds that even in the time, in their darkest times, these bonds matter and in fact preserve humanity in the face of of unyielding bleakness. But I, I just, it felt to me like the filmmakers didn't care about this guy whose life was in extreme danger because he was back there caring for this admittedly quite cute dog but like fuck the dog at that point like get yourself out i I, I mean and who am i to judge i I know but i just the 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 cynicism of this shtick as an answer to how you get people to pay attention to important subjects worthy of documentary (laughs) approach like it just made me so angry i I don't know i mean well first of all okay let me just score the ultimate oxford debating point um victory here the response to all of this is, good boy, good dog. <laughs> oh, look, boo-boo doggy. Okay, so having now won the debate in a cake in a cakewalk, let me expand mm-hmm. a little further and say, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, first of all, this wasn't b- binding up the medicine in something sweet in order to get it down the throats of, you know, blithe uh, Americans who don't care about the siege of Aleppo. That that wasn't the point. The point was to find situations in which the human-canine relationship is especially deep and especially meaningful, uh, firstly. And secondly, you know, the word sentimentality got thrown around a couple of times. I actually don't think the relationship between humans and dogs, I mean, it can be sentimental, as the relationship between friends and lovers and family can be sentimental. But there, But there's also an elemental aspect of the relationship between human and dog. So, scholars now are asserting quite seriously um, that we co-evolved and that it was, first of all, our domestication of wolves that allowed us to conquer the Neanderthals with whom we coexisted, you know, for quite a while. And secondly, it's only after you have domesticated wolves that you can settle as human beings have settled now for tens of thousands of years, because then you can husband sheep um and you can actually be in one place and the apex predators that come in and eat the sheep and make that impossible are suddenly kept at bay and so i think that there's a a a deep and quite serious scientific argument about the idea that we form not obviously a single species but together we created what we think of as being human with dogs and so it's more than just another relationship like having a dog as a pet is fundamentally different from having anything else as a pet and i say that as a person who loves his cat but um i do think that those that that relationship lies so so deep in the human psyche that Showing how that depth plays out in a modern world that is threatening it from every kind of angle is a worthy subject for a multi-part documentary. Secondly, I would say, did I love this in its execution? I wouldn't say I loved its execution. I loved the spirit of it. I enjoyed watching it. And um, I thought it was 
a little slow and a little too loving. It presumed maybe a little bit much on um, what is probably people's sentimentality about the, uh, their relationship to their pet. That said, good dog. Good dog. Oh, boo-boo dog. Just one, one clarification of your second point after boo-boo dog. <laughs> Which is that? <laughs> which is that? I don't think Julia or I were saying that the relationship between humans and dogs is sentimental. We were saying that the treatment of it can be sentimental, and that we detected that in this doc documentary series. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think you can really classify any relationship, emotional relationship, as sentimental itself. I mean, that's it's all in the way that it's kind of you know presented and uh, and understood and framed. Right, but this wasn't this wasn't a series of cute pet videos. It was trying to get at why that bond or at least to show how deep that bond is in these instances where it you know is either necessary to the well-being of the person as it is in the first episode or threatened by you know world giant geopolitical world events and war and you know anyway whatever it's fine like i love that you can keep your cynicism totally in abeyance julia when dealing with you know, our our modern Silicon Valley plantation overlords, but then it comes flooding back in when it comes to Boo Boo Doggy. I, you know, to me, it's about like, are you being cynical or sincere in the thing you're trying to build and how you build it? And I definitely think the dogs is a far more cynical production than um, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Far more cynical because it's not actually about dogs. It's about like, let's use dogs as a vehicle to tell a whole bunch of other stories. All right. Well, we this is this is the throwback ep- episode. We agree to disagree on everything. Um, but uh, anyway, the, the documentary is Dogs. It's on Netflix. Uh, check it out and then come to Twitter and settle this debate for us. Moving on. Everyone from Ezra Pound to George Orwell has uh, railed against the use of cliches as deadening to the mind and especially the political soul that somehow authoritarianism or totalitarianism is more easily put over on people who can only think in cliches. But as Mark Abley argued recently in The Walrus, most of us don't seek out a new form of language. And if we happen to come across arbitrary sentences or silly paragraphs, maybe we're less than thrilled about it. But so what? What's the big deal? Are cliches really to be avoided? Do they really shut off some key part of our sensibility, making us more vulnerable to whopping untruths? Julia Turner, you are an editor. I'm sure you spent more than your share of time looking at copy and saying, strike that out. It's a cliche. Get rid of it. Was that wasted time? I am so interested in the fundamental question here of whether cliches are anathema or useful. Um, and I, I am of multiple minds about it. I mean, I definitely think that the highest order writing and the journalism I like to try to put into the world, I would prefer that it not include cliches. And there are a bunch of lazy journalism cliches that should never appear in print at the end of the day. Uh, I can't even think of them because I've stricken them so extensively from my mind. However, in speech, sometimes there are um, kind of refrains in conversation that strike me as useful. Uh, one of the examples cited in the article is Canary in the Coal Mine. Uh, and like the Canary in the Coal Mine is a useful and quick and not unvivid way of conveying the idea. Uh, a, a thing which, if it suffers, will be a sign of greater suffering to come. Um, like 
that's useful. Should everybody in everyday speech have to come up with a new way to say it? Are we subject to potential autocracy if we don't? I don't think so. So I don't know. I, I guess what I've arrived at here is a notion that in written work versus spoken speech, maybe that's where I draw the line. Why don't, why don't you guys batter on that idea for a minute and we'll see if I still believe it. Yeah, there's a lot going on there because because canary in a coal mine is not just a cliche, but an idiom, you know, and I think that it's important to distinguish between the two. I'm not quite sure whether you would say that every idiom is also a cliche, but but without idiomatic speech, I mean, we couldn't we wouldn't have a shared common language. It would be absurd to say that saying the words canary in a coal mine in a conversation is somehow a hopeless submission to some pre-existing law about speech that you should be reinventing at every second. I mean, the reason it became a, an idiom in the first place is because it expresses a specific thing in a colorful way and people can exchange it and know what they're talking about. We used one earlier in this show talking about Ralph Breaks the Internet when we mentioned um uh, having your cake and eating it too, right? That's something that expresses a very specific situation that would take a lot more words and be very unwieldy to have to re-explain every time. And uh, and I, I thank God for phrases like that. So I mm-hmm. think maybe speaking and writing is the place to look at it. Maybe you don't want to be writing canary in a coal mine and have your cake and eat it too all the time. But it would be absurd to say that anytime we use metaphorical language in a way that's yeah. been used before, we're wrong and bad. All right. Well, what's, but we're recording a podcast, not writing a doing a piece of writing and what i loved um, among the many things i loved about sam adams lively and intelligent review of ralph breaks the internet is he turned the phrase uh to make it not a cliche he said this kind of branded semi-satire often feels like an attempt to have one's cake and sell the rights to it too so i mean it just so there are a couple different things there's the i think the pound you know ezra pound's uh inveighing against cliche and then there's orwells and i think they come from different kinds of critique and maybe separating them out is a little helpful so pound you could say is just an an aesthetes critique in the face of dead or received metaphor and you know it may have a moral dimension in the sense that modern experience is endlessly innovative some in some ways that are deeply alienating or disorienting and therefore artistic or literary production ought to reflect that novelty by making a new language to reflect how different and how quickly different our own experience becomes. And the second that you fall back on received literary language or forms, you are doing an injustice to what people's actual experience of the world is. Um, It's just moved beyond, you know, if, if in 19, you know, 15 after the First World War, you're using Victorian language, you are ipso facto, you are a bad writer. And I do think that that's true. And then there's the Orwellian critique or the, you know, George Orwell critique in politics and the English language, which is, you know, euphemistic language. There's a, there's a kind of continuum between cliche and propaganda or sort of euphemistic and received language and propaganda. And not all of one is the other. Um, Or I should say not all bad or stale language is propagandistic or totalitarian. However, all propagandistic and totalitarian language is in some respects cliched. It it allows a person to use language manipulatively in a way that does not allow either the speaker or the hearer to think and therefore picture what reality is. And, and, you know, Orwell's point over and over again is that dead language allows you to not conjure up what the dead body you know, the victim of a political murder actually looks like or feels like. And um, 
you know, I think that both critiques have validity, but then, but we live in the age of endlessly pro- proliferating information, some of which serves quite different purposes than Pounds or Orwell's, and and yet is useful. And at a certain point, I do think, you know, people are not going to live up to the full extent of their human flourishing, you know potentiality and they're going to use some cliches and we just can't have Ezra Pound and George Orwell squatting on each shoulder telling us to strike it out or else, you know, a lot of very useful, very interesting work is just never going to see the light of day. So, I mean, if you're lucky enough to be writing imagistic poems of the highest order or political tracks in which, you know, the truth in its unvarnished, you know, uh, you know, essence rises to the surface, by all means, maybe don't resort to cliches. But I think that one can maybe get a little neurotic about that. But anyway... Stephen, because you cite Orwell, one of the things we read in preparation for this is, is Orwell's great essay, Politics in the English Language, from 1946. It's so fantastic. I may read a bit from it later where he um, he rephrases a line from Ecclesiastes in kind of mid-century mm-hmm. non-speak, and it's just so brilliant. Uh, Dana, I think you put your finger on it. Any discussion about cliches and whether or not they're important to jettison from one's vocabulary or writing or whatever is it just comes back to the the ultimate touchstone you know to use a bunch of cliches um it may even be a cliche to worship to venerate this essay but orwell's politics in the english language which is just it's just the source for you know all of the thinking person's contempt you ought to feel for received or dead language. I mean, it's just inescapable. And it's it's one of the rare things that I think one could claim every self-respecting, you know, educated or not person should read in order to understand why using language in a vital way is not simply an aesthetic, you know, thing. It's not just being good at English class or or, you know, displaying your fine sensibility. It literally is engaging with reality in a way that has a moral and political dimension. Yeah, it's such a wonderful essay, and he's so specific about it. I mean, what's so great about it is, I mean, this would be an incredible essay to teach. I wonder, Steve, if you ever have taught it, but he really breaks it down in terms of, you know, what, what's the what's the etymology of the wor- of the language you're using, and, you know, what what's the kind of cultural association with various adjective-noun pairings. He's And it's, of course, specific to his time, because it was written in 1946, but the principles in it still completely hold. Just for example, I wanted to read something I mentioned earlier, which is his rewriting of a sentence, a famous verse from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Can I can I indulge myself and just read this uh, aloud? Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. So he says, Now that I've made this catalog of swindles and perversions, let me give another example of the kind of writing that they lead to. This time, it must of its nature be an imaginary one. I'm going to translate a passage of good English into modern English of the worst sort. Here is a well-known verse from Ecclesiastes. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. That's King James translation, I would imagine. And here's, here's Orwell's translation into modern English. Objective considerations of contemporary phenomena compel the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity, but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account. <laughs> and you hear everything there, right? The, the passive voice, the use of these kind of fa- fancy Latinate words, the vagueness, right? There's no more specific uh, concrete words like sun and race and strong and bread. They've all turned into these, you know, Latinate fancifications. And uh, 
And it's, I mean, it's, it's over the top, but in a way not. I mean, in some of the examples he gives have a very similar effect of, of meaning obscuring. All right. Well, uh, we'll give Orwell and Dana Stevens the last word on this, right, Julia? You know, I, th- I think this segment is uh, gone on long enough, but I actually had one more question I'd love to talk about with you guys. Maybe we can scrap our original plus segment concept and instead propose this. Uh, is Trump's use of language original or prone to cliche? If so, in what ways? And how does his use of language contribute to things that concern us about his creeping power? It'd be fun to get into that. I, I feel like there's some ways in which he's he wields language in ways that Orwell would recognize and sounded the alarm on. And then there's other ways in which he's like a very original voice on the political scene. And I'm a little confused about it. I would love to suss it with you guys. Yeah. I mean, it's out of left field, but I could definitely continue this cliche conversation. So I'd explore that. All right, let's do it. See you in plus, gang. All right, yes, we will see you in plus. Uh, the essay, I should say, the essay that we sort of were taking off from is by Mark Abley. It's in The Walrus of November 19th of this year. It's called Clichés as a Political Tool. All right, moving on. All right, now's the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I'm going to keep it simple this week, and I'm actually inspired by your love for the dogs show on Netflix. I'm going to go with a 39-second YouTube video. Actually, this sort of brings together Ralph wrecks the internet, Ralph breaks the internet, as they stubbornly insist on calling it, and the dog topic, because it is a dog video on the internet that has many, many views and deserves those many views because it's a little drama unto itself. It's called Duck Chases Dog. It's 39 seconds long. (laughs) It has no sound. And it is this Beckettian little interaction between a duck and a dog and a rock where the duck chases the dog around the rock and then they switch directions and the dog chases the duck and they keep on losing each other and then finding each other again. And a whole drama is enacted with these two creatures circling this rock. I love the simplicity of Duck Chases Dog. I've never shown it to anyone who didn't agree. It's one of the better dog videos they've ever seen. So we'll link to it on the show page, Duck Chases Dog on YouTube. Good dog. Good boy. Um, Julia, what do you have? I would like to endorse a beautiful piece of writing findable on the internet at rookiemag.com. Tavi Gevinson, the fashion wonderkind turned teen magazine founder turned actress, uh, published a note last week saying that she was planning to shutter Rookie Magazine, the teen magazine that um, she launched to counter stereotypes about women and and. Uh, the bad priorities espoused for young girls in existing corporate teen magazines. Um, The latter is just an incredibly smart assessment of the digital media landscape. It reminds you what an original and sharp and interesting voice Tavi's is. Um, I mean, I'm not the generation that grew up in love with her. I'm not enough of a fashionista to have been besotted with her persona, but I just read this letter and was so impressed by her wisdom and acuity, both about the digital media landscape, which I do understand about her own priorities as a human, as she grows up. Um, And one of the things that made me think about was the fact that the internet of 10 years ago was a place where someone with a voice as smart and original and striking and not prone to cliche as Tavi Gevinson's could rise and attract the notice of people who could help her find a bigger platform. And that's probably still true today, but um, 
we're getting far enough into the internet to be able to really think about the different epics of internet dumb and uh, reading her very smart editor's note made me think a little bit about where we were and where we're headed. I heartily recommend it. Oh, R.I.P. Rookie. Maybe Tavi will act in more movies now. She was in uh, Enough Said, that Nicole Hall of Center movie, in a small part, and she was she was great as a supporting actress. Maybe she'll act as well as edit. I think that's part of her. I mean, that's part of what she describes as her plan that that she didn't actually want to become a businesswoman or do the things that it would have taken to sustain Rookie as a business, and she wanted to pursue more independent creative projects, including acting. So. More power to her, but I, um, I really admire what she achieved and admire the acuity with which she decided to stop pursuing it. Mm. Good dog, good boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just can't like you know. Netflix sent a poignant love letter to humanity, and Julia returned to sender. What else is there to say about this show? So it's turned me, I'm blaming my endorsement on you, in other words. It's turned me back into a highbrow, arty uh, crank. So this uh, week, I'm going to endorse Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov. And I'm going to endorse not only reading it, but rereading it. Because first of all, it is one of the great, truly great works of 20th century literature. I would defend it up, down, and sideways uh, as such. But... Rereading it this time, it occurred to me that it's so clearly not only a book about human suffering, which people have, you know, obviously picked up on from the beginning, but his own suffering, how personal the book is. I mean, for those who don't know, just very quickly, it essentially is a a Rubik's Cube of a novel that includes a poem written by an American poet, you know, named John Shade, which is, of course, an invention of, both are an invention of Nabokov. So Nabokov writes a 999-line poem ventriloquizing what a mid-century American campus poet might write. And then there's a long, insane, completely maniacally diluted commentary on the poem by a effectively a madman who's taken possession of the poem and deployed it to his own purposes. A guy named Charles Kinboat who believes that falsely that he's a deposed King from a faraway land. (laughs) And it's insane. I mean, it's Nabokov to the 11th degree, but it's such a deeply humane novel and it's a confession of Nabokov's own sense of exile and linguistic exile because he's both shade and Kinboat. He sees himself in both characters and it just came home to me, the utter pathos of the novel this time. And Nabokov is so careful at hiding his humanity underneath these elaborate literary and linguistic puzzles. But but so integrated into the web of, of that of, within that intricate and, and playful gamesmanship is a confession of how people torment one another and thieve one another's lives. And... Um, there's an edition of um, uh, of Pale Fire has an introduction by the philosopher Richard Rorty, who's one of my all-time heroes. And I think Rorty in some ways gets the novel wrong, but he has a sentence that is so clear and so beautiful that I have to read it. He says, we all spend a lot of time inventing people rather than noticing them, reshaping real people into characters in stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, stories about how beautiful and rare we are. And what Nabokov does better than any writer who ever lived is take 
an oblivious human being, a human being who's being completely oblivious to the suffering of another human, often suffering that they have caused. So in his two most famous novels, Humbert's utter destruction of a young pre-adolescent girl, Lolita, um, and in Pale Fire, the theft of uh, essentially another writer's work and life by a madman. And through that shows you the suffering uh, and the humanity that they haven't seen, even though you're only seeing through their eyes. Anyway, it's a work of total, total genius, and people shouldn't be put off by it, because um, as elaborate as it is, it's very, very, very funny. And um, it's just it's just the, it's just as great a work of literature as I've ever read. I really can't recommend it enough. Don't be frightened by it. Nabokov wants you to laugh, uh, and he wants you to uh, have a good time. Um, while reading it. Anyway, Pale Fire by Nabokov. Hey, hey, Steve. Can I scramble your your uh, circuit board? <laughs> yes. Uh, totally agree. Pale Fire is one, probably one of my <laughs> top three all-time great books. What an accord of taste and <sighs> perception we share. I feel like um, in the spirit of this week's show, I should be storming out saying, Pale Fire is an abomination <laughs> unto humanity. <laughs> but it's one of my favorites, uh, too. Oh my god. Can I it's throw a word so... at you though, Steve? Can I impress you with a with a word that I did not know until a couple weeks ago that can be applied to pale fire? In fact, I learned it. It was specifically linked to pale fire in my learning of this definition. Have you ever heard oh of a, yes. a poyumenon? No. So a poyumenon. Is that some kind of chicken dish? <laughs> Poyo. <laughs> nice. No, poyumenon, which comes from the same root as as poetry, right? The Greek word poiesis is a um, it's a literary term, a, a rhetorical term. It's a it's a kind of it's a subsection of metafiction. It's basically a, a work of art that is about its own creation, like pale fire. A, a work mm-hmm. of art in which, well, I guess you could say, remembrance of things past, right? The the multi part Proust novel is also a poyumenon, but it's a mm-hmm. it's a fictional work that that kind of creates the grounding for its own writing. So that sort of on the last page, the you know the Bildungsroman protagonist begins the book that you are just reading, or something of the sort. And uh, and pale fire was the first example that was adduced in this whatever literary site I happened to come upon the word poyumenon. Ooh, love that. Nice word, right? Uh, yes, very much so. Uh, I recommend to both of you rereading Pellfire if you haven't done it recently. It's just the payoff is so unbelievable. Oh, my God. All right. Anyway, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. Julia, a, a grudging thanks. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> good dog. Good girl. Um, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at uh, culturefest at slate.com. And we have a Twitter feed. You can interact with us at, uh, at Slate Cult Fest. This episode was produced by Max Jacobs and Danielle Hewitt. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. 